Welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, the movers, the shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, the costume designers, the composers, the sound mixers and editors, the film editors, you name it, we talk to them. And happy that you're here today because this is the last show of 2021. Yes, we've made it through another year of hell. Let's just be honest. Um, But we have not been lacking in great TV shows and great movies this year. You know, Invasion. You just heard my interview with Simon Kinberg last week talking about Apple TV's Invasion. Dope Sick, one of the finest miniseries of the year on Hulu. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Uh, films, of course. You know, distributors always save the, the best for last. And boy, we've had an onslaught over the past, I'd say, eight weeks. With a few more yet to come for you out there in the public that the press have seen but you haven't seen yet. Um, you know, Belfast, still... My pick for best picture of the year. But close behind that is, and I know, classic film fans are raising their eyebrows to hear this, but West Side Story. Being the Ricardos is right up there as well. Then you've got your specialty areas with cinematography, with costuming. And granted, some, a lot of that overlaps. But then you get things like your visual effects. You've got amazing visual effects uh, thanks to the Weta team in the climactic third act battle in Eternals, Marvel's Eternals. Uh, that is, their work is exemplary. There's also incredible work in No Time to Die, Daniel Craig's final James Bond movie. Uh, some standout performances this year. Just interesting films as well. The French Dispatch um, from Wes Anderson. Always quirky, always fun. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Uh, More good ones that are out there now. Come on, come on is a great one. Just so much. And animated films. We saw so many good animated films this year. Popeil of Chimney Town is superb. Vivo, I love Vivo Beyond Belief. That is on Netflix. Uh, you've got the Mitchells versus the Machines on Netflix. The a brand new one that just came out, Back to the Outback, is utterly charming and so much fun. And we see creatures animated that we aren't used to seeing because the whole thing takes place down under in Australia. Um, it is absolutely wonderful. Coming out this Wednesday, Sing 2 and... Bono, okay, Bono is animating and singing. So you definitely want to see Sing too. All your favorite characters are back. Matthew McConaughey is back as Buddy Moon. Um, so there's so much to see, especially over the next coming weeks as things shut down for Christmas, for New Year's, and sadly for COVID. Uh, so, you know... It, a lot of this, there's so many good films that are streaming right now. There are so many that are good, just not even on streaming platforms 
like your Netflix, your Hulu, your Apple, your Disney Plus. But just seek out titles. Look for things in their standalone digitals. Um, and also make sure, you know, if see Dune if you can. But even better than that, read the Frank Herbert books. Um, and you'll you'll love the the parallel and the tie-in. Same thing with Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut of The Lost Daughter. Um, there is a book companion. Get the book. Read the book. Um, all of our, my regular listeners and readers, you all know I'm a big, big, big champion of the page uh, of books. And uh, I'd love to see what filmmakers do with books when they adapt them for the big screen. Some work, some don't. So it's always good. Go to your source material and uh, you're going you're gonna to have a treat there because something in there is what inspired somebody to want to make a film. But so you've got a lot of great things to watch to keep you entertained and occupied. And of course... Spider-Man, No Way Home. In theaters now, Spider-Man and the Multiverse, No Way Home. Um, wow. It is just a wow. The second biggest film release in film history. Forget about COVID. People were concerned the numbers would be down because of COVID and people staying home and not going to the theaters. <laughs> Spider-Man defied the odds. The only film with a bigger first weekend release, opening weekend release, was Avengers Endgame. So, the movies are there. If it's a quality movie, it's a movie people want to see, people will go to the theaters. So, distributors do not, do not sell the moviegoers short. Give films that opportunity on the big screen so that people can see them. Because the audience, they are listening and they are watching. But... I'm very excited about today's show. Joining us at the midpoint of the show is going to be writer, director, and editor David Beinstein and his producer and cinematographer Alan McIntyre-Smith talking about Are You Happy Now? It's an anti-rom-com but still a bromance buddy comedy. Um, It's charming. It's fun. It's got chickens, a lot of chickens in it. And we're going to be chatting with David because I want to find out why chickens are in this film and how it was working with them. But so I'm really anxious to talk to uh, David and Alan at the midpoint of the show. But before then, um, we're going to kick off. Uh, I love I love this film. I love this franchise. All right. Call me crazy. The Princess Switch franchise on Netflix starring Vanessa Hudgens back for its third film. It's been screening the past month or so on Netflix. It is so much fun. Vanessa Hudgens plays three characters. She plays good old American girl Stacy, her lookalike royal princess friend Margaret, and Margaret's cousin Fiona. Uh, and... In the first film, it was just the characters of Stacy and Margaret. In Switched Again, we did another switch, but then Fiona was introduced. And now, in Princess Switch 3, Romancing the Star, 
all three girls, a lot of the focus here is on the character of Fiona. Um, wonderful. The regular the regular co-stars are back. Nick Sager, Sam Palladio, Mark Fleischman, Remy Hill, Sue Ann Braun, um, Theo Devaney, Florence Hall. And joining this for this third film is Will Kemp. And all you Hallmark folks out there, all you Christmas Waltz fans, you definitely want to see Princess Switch 3 just to see one of our faves, Will Kemp, do a tango and dance. We all know that he is a dancer. And he has the most elegant lines you will ever see. <laughs> Forget about Dancing with the Stars or so you think you can dance. Will Kemp's lines his arm and leg extensions are fabulous. One day I want to hear Bruno Tonioli uh, um, critique Will Kemp's dancing. But there's a bit of a heist. There's a bit of a con. And it's so much fun. And But back once again is Mike Roll directing. This has become an annual thing for Mike and I. Every year we talk about, every year in, in November, December, we talk about Princess switch whichever one it is hopefully next year we're gonna have a four so one of the great things is each year the films are set at Christmas set at the holidays and there's lots of Christmas lights abound and just when you think there are no more lights to be found in the United Kingdom where they shoot somehow Mike's team his production designer Pat Campbell finds more uh and it is spectac visually spectacular. Um, Fernando uh, Argelis is the cinematographer again. Um, and Lee Hale is a new. The editor is new to the franchise, but you know his work from Henio uh, Derbez's Overboard, Mike and Dave's Wedding Dates, Beer Fest, Meet the Fockers. So we've got a very pedigreed editor coming in this time. So, but. It's always a joy talking to Mike about this film uh, and all the little nuances in it. We only had a brief like 15 minutes this year to chat, but well worth it. This was shot in Scotland in, in a Scottish castle. Um, so it's just beautiful. It's regal. And Vanessa Hudgens never ceases to amaze me with her work. So without any further ado, take a listen to getting the Christmas spirit with my special interview, my exclusive interview with Mike Roll, director of Princess Switch 3, Romancing the Star. Hi, Mike. Hey, Debbie. How are you? I am so thrilled to be talking to you again for our annual Christmas call. <laughs> yes. Yeah. to look forward to, right? Oh, my God. Mike, you have, I was telling Chelsea, you have outdone yourself with Princess Switch 3. I want to know. I didn't think you could top all the the Christmas lights and the twinkle lights in Switched Again, but my God, you had a whole other location this year that is equally ducked at, decked out as the palace is decked out in lights. Did Pat Campbell, your production designer, leave any lights in any of the stores in Scotland? <laughs> That's a really good question. You know, I kind of, I kind of don't think so. I think. Uh... He probably not only cleared out all the stores in Scotland, but the rest of the UK, and, and I heard rumors of it of Wales and Ireland too. Oh my God! 
And it's not, and the visual is expanded by adding in the character of Hunter Cunard and his manse. Um, you even expand the kind of Christmas decor from what, from the bright white little fairy lights that cover the palace in Montanaro. Yeah, well, you, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a story behind that, uh, you know, you know, wanting to upgrade the look of the movie, you know, uh, and trying to top ourselves, you know, when it came to Hunter's party, I, it's funny, I said to myself, you know, we don't, this could just be a, you know, a regular black tie event, you know, with people in nice dresses and stuff like that. And I thought, well, no, this, this is the bad guy. This is, this is Hunter. He's kind of a wolf. And if he was going to pull out a Christmas party, what kind of Christmas party would he do? So being a fan of Kubrick, of course, I kind of gently and probably very strangely borrowed from Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> what if we had an Eyes Wide Shut Christmas? And if you'll notice, there's masks. Yep. People in weird period uh, outfits and the makeup and, you know, the, the look of the, of the whole place itself is a different color palette. It's sort of more almost Halloween with the golds and the oranges and, and some, you know, some blue hits here and there. So, yeah, that was very much on purpose. And, yeah, Pat, Pat had a lot to do with that, too. As soon as she sort of took those clues on, she just executed, you know, to the max. I mean, just it just blew my mind. And, of course, then at the heart of all of this, is that beautiful star of peace ornament did pat design that pardon me did pat design the star of peace ornament tree topper well here's, here's the thing here's a little kind of semi like kind of fact about the show that is actually quite cool you know she oversaw the whole thing yeah she she uh you know robin the writer and i got together we talked to her about kind of a result we wanted but the person who had a lot to do with the meat potatoes of drawing it out and offering up designs was Matt Palladio, Sam Palladio's brother. Wow. He's actually worked on our, was, uh, yeah, Sam's got his own blossoming career going on in the film industry right now. And he was on our show working in the art department. And uh, <laughs> he had a lot to do with what that, that star ended up looking like. He's a totally gifted uh, artist himself. That it's beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. But yeah, that struck me the minute we see that. It struck me. But what? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's a custom it's a custom made thing. We had a jewelry maker in Scotland, uh, <laughs> who you know who, who does a lot of that kind of work in Scotland, and so he took like six weeks, I think it was, to put it all together, polish it up, and make it uh, look the way it looked. And uh, we're all very proud of it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and I'm not surprised to hear you say that it was it was a jeweler that made it because of the way that the stones are set on each of the little starbursts that come out of the core of it. Because that really takes yeah. the meticulous nature of a jeweler of a jeweler to do that. Yeah, sure. And of course, it's all multicolor, so you get that whole the the gemstones give you that prismatic effect. But it also all of the colors in that ornament bring in your primary colors for Fiona, Stacy, and Margaret. Hey, I'm glad you. That's a very astute observation. I mean, I I just looked at it and went, "That's really lovely," but. So my, 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 my collaborative partners went a little deeper than I thought. Good, good eye. Good catch there. I didn't even notice that. Oh, my God. Because yeah, we've got Fiona, who is predominantly in red and black. Stacy is wearing her Christmas greens or her or her United States kind of sweat sweaty blues. Margaret is always in gold and white and then some blush pinks to give her a little bit of color. And then the palace, the main room in the palace that we spend time in, 
is that drawing room or sitting room that has the red uh, brocade wallpaper happening in it. So it's the, the colors of the three girls that really come together in that star. I just thought that was just so cool. <laughs> That's great, yeah. That's a lovely detail. You know, lovely detail, yeah. Now, throughout the construction of this film, I I love the way this time Fiona gets to shine. Um, and we get redemption happening here. We get family coming together. Uh, and I really love the way this trilogy is capped off. Hopefully, maybe we'll get a switched four. But what you also do with these setups, you pay great homage to Entrapment and Ocean's 12 and 13 and Vincent Casale's character of, of Francois the Fox. And you've got the nods to Cruella de Vil with the Dalmatian and the fur coat. You have these great little nods, and then even in your, in your score, and you've got new composers this time, they really pick up on the heist while we're going through the lasers, and we get that same little French kind of uh, musical notes that we heard with Casale's character in the Oceans films. And I love all of these little details and these little homages that you bring in. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was definitely... Uh... Uh, you know, we knew that uh, when we brought in the thriller element to it, that uh, you know, there's 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 certain expectations and stuff like that. So we did take a little inspiration for some of our our friends out there in the world, and uh, you know, try to mix it together and create its own little its own little mash, stuff like that. So I'm glad you you, you were able to see those sorts of things because yes, Cruella was always uh, kind of our uh, our go-to uh, sort of influence when it came to Fiona, even back in TS2. Yes, we always knew that she was sort of this elegant opportunistic, you know, who knows what side of uh, the moral scale she would land on kind of character. And so, uh, yeah, that, that drove a lot of it a lot of it home. And you'll notice in the movie, too, that as soon as she walks through the uh, the, the doors of Hunter's place, that the, the whole thing slowed down into slow motion. Uh-huh. And that's where I switched the movie from being kind of a, you know, a, a Christmas rom-com into kind of a Christmas thriller. And so I was able to kind of use, use some of the skills I've got from Pagiano working you know, on purpose, slow motion, slowed everything down, brought in the, 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 a whole different kind of music and try to just change the tonality of that. Yeah. And, and then get it right into the thriller genre and try to, you know, try to excite people. But at the same time, try to keep that sort of romance and that kind of uh, a place where their relationship between uh, Peter and Fiona was at the time. Keep that alive and keep that bubbling under the surface. Well, and, and you do that so well from a visual tonal standpoint but also emotionally and with the new characters you bring in. Remy Hill is wonderful as Peter. But I got to tell you, my favorite, Will Kemp, you, you cast perfectly to bring Will in. And we get to see Will dance, which is yeah. always the greatest thrill because there is nobody has lines and extensions like he does. His legs in his arms, and to pick a tango, it, it just so perfect. And the tango even breathes into the villainy of Hunter. It very, very Arnold Schwarzenegger, True Lies kind of feel. Uh, you know, yeah, definitely. He, he brought the wolf to the character for sure. You know, and I've known I've known Will for a while. He, we did a movie together a couple of years ago, and, and stuff. And I always knew he was a. You know, I'd heard he was a dancer. He didn't dance in the last movie. Uh, but I had no idea how good he was. Yeah. He's so good. And, you know, uh, Vanessa, who's obviously a dancer, 
but you know, I think really appreciated it. Uh, you know, to have a, a dance partner of his quality because I tell you, shooting the tango itself was a lot of fun. It was it was exhausting, and it took a lot of stamina on their both parts. But she felt, I think, in his arms and under his sort of uh, guidance, she felt comfortable to be able to express herself as best she could because she knew she had a, somebody she could depend on, especially in some of the lifts and some of the harder things. So I'm completely grateful to Will. Not only is he, uh, you know, uh, amazing, charismatic actor, he's a sweet man, really sweet guy. And so uh, I felt very lucky to have him there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely wonderful. And I have to say, with your work with Fernando, I, your visuals, you've gotten fancier with this one than in Switch 2. Yeah, it's true. It's like, uh, you know, there's, there was a certain approach in the first one with the, uh, you know, it was a, a relationship, more of a rom-com. There was a little bit of a, little bit of a you know, when, when she tried to steal, uh, steal the crown and stuff like that. But this one, you know, it just, the, this, the juices in both our parts, because uh, Fernando works a lot in genre stuff, but I've got a complete passive genre. This one felt like, hey, we got to pull out our little uh, toolbox. It says thriller on it and and, and mystery on it. We got to pull out some of those, those those tools we use on those things, and that's where some of the different kind of camera techniques and the slow motion and the, the different angles and the moves and the high angles and low angles, you know, transformed this uh, franchise and expanded on it to something that's uh, you know I think people aren't going to really expect if they see the first two. I think this one will kind of hopefully be a pleasant surprise. It really is, and it, it really, it moves the franchise along. It elevates it. It's not the same old, same old. Uh, as you well know, you look at, you see so many films that are franchises, and yes, you like the comfort of same old, same old, but you want to see something new, and you really deliver that. And I could see, with the character of Hunter coming in, and that villainy, and the heist, and that whole thriller aspect, Fernando was reaching back into his toolbox that he used on Hemlock Grove and Grimm with some of the camera angles and also the lighting because you switch up the lighting here. The whole film is not totally bright lights with dazzling with little twinkle fairy lights, Christmas lights covering everything. There's a lot more depth and texture with the lighting here and I really found that striking. Oh yeah, no. He that 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 that's really that's very kind of you to say. He he definitely worked on that. Yeah, because you'll notice during the actual break-in and stuff like that, you know, he mixed up some of the high contrast pictures with uh, you know really unusual colors like green, you yeah. know, like a emerald green out of nowhere, or a blue or a red, just kind of fill in the backgrounds and stuff like that. And it just gave a sophistication to it that I thought was was really really great. But uh, yeah, a lot of credit to him for that. And you know. Um, when we came up with this, uh, with the third one, I got to give a lot of credit to uh, Brad and uh, Robin, Robin Bernheim, the writer, who, you know, was able to really kind of like, we got to take this in a new direction. We got to add something new. So, you know, through our collaboration, she was able to execute, you know, the whole idea of the of, of, of the heist and uh, the track, of, you know, in the thriller genre and stuff. So. Robin gets a lot of credit for, you know, how this uh, franchise moved in this new direction. With only one more, I've got to ask you, Mike, what is it about this franchise that keeps you coming back? It's obviously special to you that you do keep coming back and helming this. What is it that speaks to you as a filmmaker, as a moviegoer, that really keeps you coming back and totally enjoying because i know you enjoy doing this series this franchise um so i'm really curious about what it is that keeps bringing you back to this one 
you know, I guess it's because it's, it's a blend of two, two of the favorite things that I like to have. It's, it's, it's the romance and it's the, and it's the comedy. You know, my, my career up to most recently, like I said before, is, is dealt mostly with drama uh, or, you know, uh, horror films and, uh, and, and more of a genre stuff. But my heart is really in comedy. I, where I started when I was first starting out, I was an improv comic working in clubs and theaters. So I got to film school, paid my way through film school making jokes. And so now I've, I've, I've found myself connected to this franchise. And I, and I love the idea of being able to be free enough to do comedy. And But the romance side of it all and the intimacy and, you know, that heartwarming. Uh, I really enjoy doing that, you know, and I really uh, like getting that result and, 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 and giving that to an audience. It's enjoyable every day to go to set. You know, and this is this is no smoke. Vanessa is a is a treat to work with. She's she's really, really super talented and funny and you know, I kind of feel like uncle director with her. You know, I really do. I I I, I a real closeness with her. I I love her to death. And, you know, any chance to get to work with her, um, I'll take it, you know, and after three, a family kind of blossomed out of this with our Scottish friends and our, our friends in L.A. and stuff like that. So the whole thing had a great positive energy. And, you know, and whenever you can be around that in your career, you want to stay there. So that's probably what's motivated me the most. Well, I want a princess switch four. <laughs> I, well, we'll see. I don't know. Who I, I definitely want a four. You've got a perfect setup now. With all three girls are paired off, you know, where could they go, the, the three of them, with getting into hijinks? You know, Princess Switch Babies. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? I mean, uh, the Oracle is Robin Robin Bernheim. She's probably on her mountain somewhere doing some kind of thinking. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. There's a, there's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of potential. Yeah. Oh, my... Thank you, thank you, thank you. It has been so much fun once again. Thank you, Debbie. Thank I, you very much. Good to talk to you. Good talking to you, and I can't wait to do it again. Yeah, me too. I, yeah, I'm having a ball. Having oh. a ball. Have a good Christmas when it shows up, and uh, you know, and Thanksgiving. Your, your American Thanksgiving coming up, so. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's time to talk turkey and Christmas lights. So hey, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, Mike. Sure. Thank you so much. And that was Mike Roll, director of The Princess Switch, through actually of all of them. Princess Switch, switched again, and Princess Switch 3, Romancing the Star. You know, it's, I actually have binged all three of them. And they don't get old, they're always enjoyable. Um, I really enjoy the franchise. And as I said, Vanessa Hudgens has really become a really good actress. Uh, there is no doubt about her skill set uh, whatsoever. But hey, while you're kicking back at home or if you're back east or you're overseas, um, you know, turn on Netflix and, and binge watch the Princess Switch trilogy. Um, you can't go wrong. It'll put you in the holiday mood. Uh, and plus, it's just fun. All three of them are just fun. So, all right. So what are we going to do here, Pam? Uh, why don't we take, while we're waiting for David and Alan to call in, why don't we take a break and then we will do, we'll talk about Mickey Reese and Agnes after 
David and Alan. How's that? All right, so we're going to take a short break, and we will be right back to Behind the Lens. Hi, it's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. A powerful threat calls for a greater response. Not tomorrow. Not in a few years. But right now. Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters stand up to cancer every day. And you can be part of this battle, too. Visit StandUpToCancer.org to learn more. Together, we can save lives. When you purchase the latest TV, tablet, or smartphone, don't forget to do the right thing with your old ones. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old devices as easy as buying new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find recycling tips, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Don't let your old tech tools clog your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. Energy efficiency interviews are brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. Matthew, you know energy-saving light bulbs last six times longer than that old bulb in your lamp. Uh, yeah, well... I don't even live here. Matthew, dinner's ready. I never met that woman. It's your favorite, Matt. Lasagna. Don't you people knock? Just give me the energy saver. Millions of kids are using their energy wisely. What's your excuse? Learn more at LoseYourExcuse.gov. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. If you're listening now, you're listening on AdrenalineRadio.com or you're watching the live stream, the Facebook live stream. uh, Because Big Boss Nick likes to play with toys and he does a video live stream. Uh, And if you're watching, you can check out a plethora of films um, that you should be checking out this fall, but right this winter. But right now, I'm very excited We've got David, Bein- uh, is it Beinstein, David? It is Beinstein. Beinstein uh, and Alan McIntyre-Smith. Welcome, gentlemen. All right. Hello, nice thank to you. be here. I am thrilled to have you guys. Are you happy now? Are you happy uh-huh. now? That is the I question. That's a, que- that's, a, that's a question for you. I think that's a question for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, having the two of you, uh, yes, I am happy now. Oh my this is this is such a fun film guys. This is really a fun film. Um awesome. Of course, you know, the distributor is marketing it as you know an anti-romance an anti-rom-com, but I got to tell you, this is a great buddy comedy with a great BFF bromance happening here. Yeah. Between That's nice to hear. I the the characters of Adam and Walt are so much fun and watching them become friends 
and watching their antics um, is just, I was sitting there watching it, laughing at the screen. Oh, uh, thank you. That's so great to hear. That's you know, so great to hear. I mean, you know, yeah, we, we, no question. We got incredibly lucky with um, Josh Rubin and, and David Ebert um, who really, I don't think have worked together before or since. And they're just kind of all-stars in their, in their little comedy world. Mm -hmm. They're all-star improv guys. And they clicked, like, they clicked right out of the bat. And I, I, I do think that's one of the things, you know, about this, this story that is hopefully a little bit unusual. That it's, it's both a romantic comedy and a, and a buddy thing. Mm -hmm. And I think you, you kind of nailed it as far as like, you know, saying, hey, there's this buddy thing happening with this romance inside of it. Um, so I'm glad I'm glad it's connected. You know, I mean, we see so many great bromances on the screen. And originally people, you know, made fun of it. But I got to tell you, the bonds between guys, I think, to a large degree, are stronger than female bonding. Um, because yeah. guys can throw away all the extraneous baggage. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so and mm -hmm. I, I love the honesty, especially here between these characters of Adam and Walt. Because this is, we start out focusing on Adam who is desperately, and desperately is the word, for his love for Gina. And, you know, he wants to marry her, he thinks, but he's not sure, and he's nervous. And Adam's kind of scattered. He, he's kind of scattered. He's all over the place. He's working for his brother. He doesn't get along that well with his brother. His brother fires him. All kinds of fun things are happening that just destroy Adam. But everything focuses around he has to be who Gina wants him to be. Then we've got Walt, who wants to be someone his dad can be proud of, but his brother is equally awful to him, if not more so than, than Adam's brother is to him. Um, so, you know, we have this commonality between these guys who end up getting thrown together. And that's where the film really takes off, is once you get Adam and Walt together. So I've got to ask you, where did, for you, David, where did the idea for this story even arise? And for you, Alan, because you are cinematographer and producer on this. So as a producer, what made you say, yes, I want to get involved uh, with this project? Because... Sometimes things come your way as a producer and you just cringe and go, oh, God, no. But I'll let David get going first, but I, I just want to say that, you know, I read a lot of scripts and a lot of them are kind of very formulaic. And what really appealed to me about this one was just the fact that it was going in so many directions at once, which to me feels much closer to real life mm -hmm. than a lot of movies are able to get across. So that was sort of what drew me into the project was sort of like, wait, what is this exactly? You know, and the, and the script was, was giving us a lot of different kind of avenues to explore this character of, of someone that's both scared and also ambitious. Right. So, mm -hmm. 
to me, that that was what appealed to me uh, first and foremost when I when I got involved. So, David, where, where did the idea come from? You? From yes, you, where did this whole? Because you've got uh, this great bromance, you've got a broken heart, you have a demanding I'll say, I'll girl. Say this. I'll say this in general. Debbie, I'm feeling like I should probably bring you with me whenever anybody asks me about the film because you're like, you know, you're just you seem to know the damn thing better than I do. I mean, um, uh, where did the idea come from? Um, you know, uh, I, I do think that 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 you know, I've been married for 25 years. Um, I love my wife. I, I feel like it was you know one of the best. It's not the best decision I've ever made in life. But, you know, um, I certainly can relate to the idea of clinging to something to, to bring you through, mm-hmm. you know, when you're scared. And I think, um, <clears throat> you know, I did have those feelings when I was younger, you know. And I think that that was very much where what I related to in terms of Adam. Now, the specifics of, I, you know, I don't have a brother. I just, I, I I worked in catering in college, but I've never worked in a restaurant, you know, um, you know, so, so, uh, but, but, you know, the idea of sort of struggling to find, you know, how do you sort of accept yourself is, is, I don't know if that's too general, but that's kind of where I was, where I was coming from. Well, you have so many moving parts here, um, as Alan said, and that's one of the big peels of this, um, are all the moving parts. So where, where did the uh, did each of these ideas for the comedic hijinks and the problems uh, that that face Adam and Walt both? Where did that come from? Uh, and of course, so this is this is it. You know, the big chicken or the egg question: What came first? <laughs> um, I think I think. Pu- Pun intended there. Pun very intended there. uh, Because I've never seen a film with so many chickens in it. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, look, I think Alan and I both felt like we'll fail safe regardless of what happens with this thing. If we throw some chickens in, we're fine. (laughs) You know, it's going to do great. Um, Now, so the question is, okay, well, Adam Adam and Walt, I mean, I think, I do think somebody said to me once, and something I, uh, Alan thought was, I, th- I think, you know, he, he thought was funny, was that, that someone once said to me, looking at an early cut, that this is kind of the story of a weirdo who meets a bigger weirdo, you know, and, and learns, learns, you know, uh, about himself. And I think that having them both have brothers, you know, Adam being able to watch you know, Walt, who's a bigger weirdo, who's dealing with a more uh, overwhelming, you know, older brother even than he has. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, that's kind of been his way. And, and um, you know, I, I don't know. I'd like, to, I'd like to think in terms of the tone. I w- it did, you know, we'll have, to see, we'll have to see what works and what doesn't. It doesn't work for people, you know. Like, I think, I think... I was certainly going for something that was doing it in, in, a, in a funnier way than, 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 than not. Um, but that's definitely where I was going, you know, coming from with Adam and, and Walt. Well, you know, this begs the question for you, Alan, as a producer and the man who's putting his hand and his name on the checks, 
Did you have any kind of trepidation or any idea about what it would be like to work with a whole bunch of chickens? Oh, I love chickens. Um, I think they're, they're great animals. And I think, like, when you're doing an indie film like this, you've got to have something that really just stands out. So not only the story, the great actors we got, but, like, how many movies have, you know, people chasing chickens around New York or, you know, some inner city uh, neighborhoods. So, so yeah, I think for me the chickens were one of those things that helps that that helps it just really help uh, you know bring the comedic you know there's something inherently funny about chickens the way they walk the way they look around you know and and you know just sort of the beginning of the movie had this this man sort of evaluating himself against the chicken sort of like a comparison of, of him and his chicken. And and we, we changed the beginning a little bit as we edited, but, you know, for me, that was that thing that, that kind of got me into it, was just sort of like, who is this guy? Why is he evaluating his life against a chicken, chasing a chicken around, and how did he get here? That was sort of where David, how David hooked me. And so, yeah, the I think, that, and everybody, you know, everybody at some point probably feels like a chicken, you know, at some point, I think. Well, you know so, that I don't know. I think this. No, I was I, I was just I was going to say, you know, it's like immediately there's that the the analogy, the metaphor is there for Adam and the chicken. You know, they talk. Everybody talks about you know you run around like a chicken with your head cut off, right. uh, and that's yeah. pretty much how Adam is going through life at this particular moment. He's just meandering in every direction. Like a chicken with its head cut off, doesn't know where it's going, is just wandering around. Right. And that's a to get on camera, right, David? I mean, in terms of, like, because everybody wants a tight script, but then they all complain when the script is predictable, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So that was our central problem with the edit, like trying to figure out, okay, how do we make this really like like what you just described, Debbie, but but at the same time make it feel... uh, not not chaotic, but humorous, right? Mm-hmm. So humor, humor is the best way to approach, I think, these kind of uh, conundrums. Oh, it's funny and, and it'll seem meaningful, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, from a directorial standpoint, David, you know, everybody is, it's long been said, kids and animals, I don't know if we're going to consider the chicken an animal, but they're feathered. It's different than an animal. <laughs> But, you know, for argument's sake, you know, what kind of, you know, you're working with animals on an indie project, uh, which is already low budget and tight to begin with in terms of your time. Did working with these chickens, you know, how well did they take direction from you? <laughs> well, first, I mean, first of all, I think we can all agree chickens are animals, damn it. Chickens <laughs> are animals. Okay, let's just get that out of the way. Um, uh, well, okay, really quick. We shot this in 20 days. Um, we had two of the, two of those days were like sort of, you know, hardcore chicken days where it was called for, (laughs) you know, something to happen with respect to these chickens. And, um, some very specific story beats, right, David? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or it's like the chicken's running around the city or it gets out or, you know, that kind of thing. And um, 
so the first of those was one of our night shoots. And I don't know if, if you are familiar with what a night shoot is, but oh, a night yeah. shoot is something that doesn't <laughs> begin until like, I don't know, what, 10 o'clock or something and goes all night. And so, and so we have that. And this was our first real shoot with, with a chicken. We had had, you know, chickens in cages, but we hadn't had them do stuff. Anyway, on that night, uh, you know, the, the most significant thing was like, hey, this chicken's going to be running down the street and Adam's <laughs> running after it. And um, that was uh, certainly the first night that I was like, oh, Jesus, be, you know, because because basically you talk about directing a chicken. All, all we were looking to do was have this chicken just like run through the frame, you know, that kind of thing. And it just it wouldn't do anything. And uh, it just sat there. Just sat so there, we, like you know, we were. What's that? It just sat there, right? <laughs> yeah, it just sat there. But we got lucky the second night that that the, the you know that the wrangler knew that like okay, why don't we get a water gun? Yeah, um, which wound up being uh, a, a significant tool to to uh, to get the chickens to at least move or do stuff. Um, but. You know, you asked the question yeah, about the first, animals. That was the key, the key thing, right, David, was having the right wrangler. Because the first wrangler, I think, was too inexperienced uh, to be working with chickens. So they, uh, Definitely. The, the second person Definitely. we got really, really did a great job. Well, yeah. you know, I'm curious for you, Alan, you know, what does this do when you have a chicken that a wrangler is trying to control, what does that do for you in terms of your lighting and your lensing? Does that present any kind of well, problem with making sure they're wrangled within the right lighting, within your framing, or do you kind of have mm-hmm. to go with the whim of the chicken? A little of both, for sure. Um, I mean, part of my style for, for this kind of movie is definitely you have to be ready for anything because we're shooting so quickly. We had 150 scenes to shoot uh, in 20 days. So we had to move quick no matter what. But uh, the chickens, I mean, we definitely, we used like uh, uh, battery-powered lighting for outside night exteriors so that we wouldn't have lots of cables around. We, you know, and we could move quickly. I had a great crew that uh, were my former students uh, from SUNY Purchase. So they were able to move the lights around for me. And basically, yeah, we were just kind of, setting up and moving as quickly as we could. And I had zoom lenses on the camera so that we could zoom in, zoom out, and, and basically get let the chicken dictate a little bit as to what was going to happen. You know, one, once we got the vibe going with, with how to work with the chicken, it got a little easier, and, and the better wrangler was able to kind of help motivate the chicken a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. But, yeah, I mean, in, in any kind of indie film, I think you have to have a little bit of an open mind as to how you're going to approach, you know, what what you're trying to shoot. If, if you're, you know, I, I always try to get as much as possible so that we can, you know, have good options for the edit. Sure. And, um, you know, the unexpected. The unexpected disasters that can inevitably befall. <laughs> A production, but and unexpected, uh, you know, triumphs too. Yes, well, I have to. I really have to compliment you on your visual tonal bandwidth, Alan. I love how you and David have kept this film light in its visual tone. Uh, We've got the scene scenes between Adam and Gina 
uh, in the house. I love that soft lighting that you bring in in the bedroom in Gina's acupuncture space, shall we say. I love the brightness and lightness of Adam and Walt in there. And I know people are just going to cringe when they hear this, but yeah, it's a fast food fried chicken place. Um, but chickens were not killed for the fryers. Just so, just so people know. No, they were not. Chickens were no chickens uh, were just, harmed. I just have to say, you know, regarding Alan, it's, it's just nice to have a, a moment just to say out loud that, like, you know, I, I, I personally think it's a gorgeous looking movie. Mm-hmm. What you're talking about, and that's all. That is all. All, all, um, all Alan and our, our production designer Lily, like they, you know, really being able to to nail to nail something. As simple as as what you're talking about with the with the fast food place, but not have it look sort of like a flat thing. Right. You know, Alan was able to kind of figure out, hey, what if we put some blue over here, and what if we, you know, mm-hmm. um, lit it in a way that's that's real, but sort of has a, a beautiful glow. Um, and there's also some some uh, some just it's some really cool stuff like when they're out in the woods you know they're both wearing yellow jumpsuits against uh you know against um some trees and mm-hmm. really i don't know i'm just a, I, I i i sat back as a fan and was able to watch watch him work yeah it's really awesome i i just love what you have done with the lightness and the brightness of the tone and of the look itself alan um especially using yeah, yellow you. Yellow is is a color that so often you have there are problems inherent to yellows. Uh, yeah, people think of yellow as like a happy color, but yellow is very anxiety inducing. Mm-hmm. So I leaned into that with the yellow jumpsuit and uh, with the, uh, our great uh, our costume designer Nakia really uh, put put those suits together and, and all the other costumes in the movie that just the colors were so great. Yeah. Because um, it's a true it's sunny with, with her and her work. Yeah. I mean, it's a um, true but, sunny yellow that you're working with and you know, it's not like the paler yellows that we so often see that, uh, that create a sickly pallor over something. And then you counter it with the blue, with blues. You know, we've got, we get a lot of blue sky, we get exteriors, we get the green trees. So you really give us a beautiful palette, Alan. Um, so it's so pleasing to watch. Nice, nice. Yeah, that all came from, like, we wanted the chicken fried food restaurant to be kind of the, the central hub visually of, of the, the color system of the film. So I'm glad you picked up on that. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you guys shot list or storyboard this? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had uh, we well, David and I went to all the locations and and yeah, we first wrote everything out. We would meet at diners all the time, and uh, you know, just we we got to know each other across the diner table, <laughs> and then we yeah. would uh, we shot listed, and then we brought that shot list and, and pre shot all the shots. Uh, Using you know I'll, uh, one of those yeah. viewfinder apps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll, first of all, that was another thing that Alan Alan just taught me a tremendous amount about 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 shot listing, um, and I mean, I'll just say a couple things quickly about that. You know, uh, it was 
it's one thing to go through, you know, your script and come up with, okay, we're going to do this and that. Um, we were lucky enough to go to the locations with a couple of Allen students and just literally just photograph them, take stills of them with the, with the uh, hey, we're going to, this is our two shots, this is our one shot, so that at least, you know, going in, we knew, okay, this is what we're going for. Um, but the funny thing about about when we would get together at diners and do, uh, you know, shot lists, sometimes, um, you know, it was the summer and, 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 uh, I don't know if I'm giving anything away here, but the, the little girl in this movie is, is Alan's daughter. Um, and we, we were able to do that because, you know, there was, there was a, a, a part that calls for a little girl and, and, um, Alan's daughter was, it was so, uh, just, just wonderful in every way, but she was so patient with us while we were doing, you know, you could see how, how, how young she is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, at the end of doing all these lengthy storyboard things, and we were doing it for weeks, you know, um, uh, I, I asked Alan if, if if there's any chance she could play it, and and he realized I was I was serious, <laughs> and uh, so anyway, she was, you know, awesome in the movie, and so and such such a cutie. Oh, um, she absolutely is. I mean, and yeah. her smile, she just melts your heart. And yeah. watching her, I got watching her engage with Josh in particular mm-hmm. is it just it melts your heart. It is so charming when they are outside and the sun is beaming down and the chicken coops are there and you know she, she's sitting on the cinder block uh, ledge. They absolutely charming, you um, know, just steals your Nina, heart. Nina. Mina Smith, don't don't forget her name. She'll be she'll be getting you know, an Academy <laughs> Award before you before you know it. <laughs> you know how how uh, strict were you with your actors, with the human actors, in terms of improvisation versus sticking to the script? Um, that's an interesting question. I think I think uh, they weren't they were they were pretty great about like just like they they would they would show up and they would know the script and they and they would we would I would say do it most of the time um, based on the script. But I would say at least I don't know what what at least ten percent, probably more twenty percent is improv. And you know one of the things I would say I would say on the day when we were shooting is that. I would just yell out to people that I'm taking credit for that because, you know, so, so often things would happen from blocking to lines to whatever that, yeah, I really was super lucky in terms of like, um, I mean, Alan, I'm thinking of like when we were shooting, you know, outside of just chicken and the, and his brother shows up and there's just more than a few times actually that David Ebert's, um, just blocking wise solves problems, you know. Uh, so I don't know if this goes to the question of how of how you know how loose I'd let them get, but I I, I I did feel that it was more of a situation of me, you know, letting them uh, do stuff that I would, <laughs> I would be like, all right, that was I, I'll take credit for that. Um, but uh, well, I think I think the but, the most important thing though, I mean, David and I went through like a, a good a long time of casting like we went through a lot we went through two casting agents and a lot of a lot of uh people came 
came through and and the initial casting agent was doing stuff like uh was bringing us dramatic actors and we just kept feeling like no we've got to get good comedy people yeah. in this you know we don't need actors we need comedians who can act and you know josh and and ishmania uh together really were great in terms of of their chemistry that they could could build and uh and of course josh and ebert were were wonderful um in the buddy sense as well so i mean i think all three of them really brought brought so much and then um Catherine Curtin as well as the as the boss of uh, of Ishmania, you know she just she had so many zingers like there's so much hilarious stuff on the cutting room floor with Catherine Curtin she just is such a veteran and you know just hilarious woman. I so will I see. Think, yeah, that was a big thing for us was was how you know just how we got to get good comedians in here let them do their thing. Well, I will see anything with Catherine Curtin in it. I have just so admired her work for years. I mean, she comes in, it may be a small part, but boy, you do not forget once she leaves the screen. Um, she That's always brings true. something. And her, and her scenes here uh, with her meditation and acupuncture are just hilarious. Hilarious. So great. So great. She's so great. She's amazing. Yeah, just absolutely fantastic. Well, yeah, yeah. Now, David, you've got you've got a background in editing, but this is your first yeah. feature film, uh, directing. Correct. So I'm curious, did having experience as an editor aid you as uh -huh. a director, or was there still a really steep learning yeah. curve involved here? I'm laughing because I thought I thought the question you were just asking me was, does my work as an editor age me as an A-G-E? <laughs> <laughs> and my answer to that is yes. But um, age, yeah, you know, look, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly one of the one of the probably many, many, uh, maybe not not so young filmmakers anymore. But but who look at a model like the Coen Brothers or or, or uh, geez even before them John Sayles or whomever who 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 look at a movie as uh, one thing from uh, from writing it to shooting it to editing it's really one thing so I always looked at the editing as, always as you know part of the writing just learning you know le learning the skill that went you know so that won't. Hope, you know, when we had the portion of putting this together and Alan was very involved in zooming, you know, it was it was a covid world, but he was able to zoom in on like, hey, what was what was working, what wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it, from my perspective, it was an opportunity to have to be fluent enough in that language to be able to shift stuff, you know, not not only take stuff out, but add things, move things around. Um, so, you know, it certainly helped, certainly helped in, in, in that sense. And it turned, it turned out that, you know, I wasn't sure going into it if I was going to wind up editing the whole, the whole thing myself. Um, but with COVID and some other things, uh, you know, I did and, and it was, uh, an aid. Yeah, I think it was, it was an age. Mm -hmm. You know, did you find yourself on the day of shooting while you're shooting, did your editor's hat come sneaking on there, pushing Mr. Director hat out of the way? Oh, and yeah. 
and no, saying, I mean, no, 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 don't do that. Do this. You can save time here. You can save that. You know, the only thing the only thing I would say for for sure with respect to that relationship between an editor and a director, I mean, if it, 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 you know, you know that like if, if you're trying to do something and and you get it, you you get the moment from three different angles mm-hmm. that you that you like that you know if you if you've done more editing you'll know, you'll know pretty well that like you're going to you're going to have options when you're putting this together that hopefully will work for the story you're trying to tell and that that doesn't that enables freeze you up when you're shooting stuff so you're not feeling so handcuffed that we have to get it from this angle and that angle and this angle that way um i'll give you one example of that uh Early on in the film, when he's going up a spiral staircase mm-hmm. and he drops stuff, um, you know, that wasn't intended to necessarily be, you know, uh, one locked thing, necessarily. I mean, actually, we only shot it from there, so it was kind of intended to be that. But it turns out that a cu- that the way it was used was largely a function of what happened in as he was walking up those stairs. Oh, he drops the thing here. Oh, he does the thing here. So I guess that uh, short answer is, you know, you know you will have options when you're putting this together. Mm-hmm. So it will free you up once you see a thing or two happening in what you're trying to to shoot that you that you think really works you think is really funny or it it tells the story you have a little you know there's a little more looseness in terms of like like well if this works or doesn't work it's going to be a function of how it's put put together and i'll have those those options Mm -hmm. so now alan for you you know you've got a, a wealth of cinematography under your belt uh on numerous numerous projects so how do you how was this collaboration with David being a first time director? How was this for right. you as a cinematographer and also as a producer? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it, it worked out really well because David and I sort of got along right off the bat. We had a nice rapport and we sort of got going with some of our mutual uh romances towards, say, the Coen brothers and and people like that, who we both had a huge admiration for in terms of their style and and their storytelling. So, you know, for me, it's always uh, about connecting to the story and about connecting to the director as we get started so that we can be on the same page and, uh, and find those mutual places that that really are just kind of magical moments in the script. So those magical moments have to line up and, and, you know, we, we, we found these places that, that we could connect on. And then, then you bring the actors into it and some things stay the same and some things change. And the actors are of course the, the most important thing once, once you start shooting, um, you know, so, so I think, I think what, you know, between the casting we got, uh, the locations, you know, we were able to take this this really uh, kind of convoluted, in a good way, story mm-hmm. where so many things are going on and, and try and distill it down to everything revolving around this, this, you know, confused character of Adam 
and and how he's sort of making one mistake after another and one mistake leads to something good but then that becomes something bad you know and, and that's sort of you know the way that that sort of comes full circle i think works really well so so yeah i mean just getting you know started with david i was we, we were put together by a mutual acquaintance the director i'd worked with uh in the past and you know it's just sort of like the the way that a lot of projects start is is just sort of like uh, someone says oh you might you might like this project or you might like this person and uh you know so you just sort of go into it with high hopes and 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 uh and usually works out pretty well i, I find well gentlemen unfortunately we're all out of time I am so happy to have had you as my final two guests of 2021 on Behind the Lens. Uh, And we got to talk about chickens and chicken wranglers. (laughs) Thank you so much, Debbie, for having us. Thank you for the the, the close watch. It seems like you really, you really, you know, you really watch the movie, which is, which is awesome. I always uh, really watch a movie. And my engineer, Pam, sitting in the off, in the booth, shaking her head up and down. Yeah. Well, I love to hear that. I love to hear that because I have to tell you, you know, it doesn't always happen that that, uh, that, that people, uh, you know, who are, are, are giving uh, their feedback on a movie have watched it as closely as you did. And and uh, it's also just really nice that you, you know, it seems, seems like you connected with a lot of it. So that's awesome. Thank it's you. fun. It's a fun movie. And everybody can see it now. It's available on the, all the digital platforms right now. Uh, it It came out on what it opened on the 7th or something so everybody can see it now and while they're sitting at home over the the next couple weeks with the holidays hey you know you're probably not cooking chicken for your holiday meals so watch a movie about chickens and don't feel bad (laughs) oh are you happy now yeah well i can tell you i'm happy now and oh guys i hope you'll come back on the show again in the future i would love to have you Thank you. Thank you for having us, Debbie. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful holiday and New Year's. All right, you too. Talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was David Beinstein and Alan McIntyre-Smith talking about, are you happy now? Yes, I'm happy now, and we're going to get even happier because now we're going to do... As promised, we're going to switch gears, and oh, we're going to end the year on an interesting note, on a very interesting note, uh, talking about the film Agnes. What starts out as, we're going dark, for all the Krampus fans out there who like a darker holiday, we're going dark with demonic possession, a nun's disturbing behavior, a remote convent, Some really strange priests, let me tell you. And then a total switch in the film uh, where it takes on a different tone. And you get lighter moments and an exploration of life from a former nun who has walked away, who had a crisis of faith and walked away. Um, it's a fascinating film. Back in June, I interviewed the film star, Molly Quinn. You know her best from Castle. Uh, 
Molly stars in the film as a nun named Mary. And it's very observational. Um, the film is written and directed by Mickey Reese. And we see the film through Mary's eyes. And for the first half of the film that takes place in the convent um, with demonic possession, exorcism, darkness happening. And uh, we see, and what's great about Molly as an actor is you can see the wheels inside her head turning when she's acting, when she's thinking and taking something in. So we're experiencing that through her eyes. Once she leaves and she's out in the world again, things change. Color comes into play. Uh, life opens up. But there's a lot of weird stuff that's happening out there, including a date between Mary and a character named Paul Sachmo, played by none other than Sean Gunn. Um, a great supporting cast, Haley McFarland, Chris Browning, Jake Horowitz, Ben Hall um, is actually a scene stealer in the second half of the film. Uh, Zandi Hardig, Rachel True, Chris Freihofer. Just, it's such an interesting film to watch. And you can't look away. And the way that Mickey has structured this film and changed up tone works so beautifully, yet everything still feels very cohesive due to his classic styling of filming. Um, there's nothing fancy with the camera work, but it's the structure of the story and flipping things. But yet having that visual cohesion works really well. So I had a chance earlier this a couple weeks ago to talk to Mickey. Uh, I talked to Molly before the Tribeca World premiere uh, back in June, but had to wait to talk to Mickey for the film's release. And it is now on VOD and digital, so you can find it. Even Spectrum has it because I looked. Um, so without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer-director Mickey Reese. And I should say the film is also co-written by John Selvage uh, along with Mickey. But take a listen to this exclusive interview with Mickey talking about Agnes. Hey, Mickey, how are you? Hi, Debbie. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you. I, I spoke with Molly back uh, before the Tribeca premiere oh, of the nice. film. And it blew my mind when I saw it. I watched it again last week before just to refresh my mind. And on a second watch, it's even better than the first watch. Oh, thank you so much. You know, this is such a unique film because anybody coming into Agnes, they're going to think it's, it's a typical exorcism kind of film. But you turn it on its head and you take us for the second half of the film in a totally different direction. Tropes are gone. You, you give us you know, what we want in the first half of the film. Uh, and, but then you spin it around and you take us in another direction that is so much fun and fascinating to watch as a character study, essentially. So I'm really curious where the whole idea for this story came from and the structure that you have for it. 
Yeah, well, that was the uh, the fun part of it was you know going into it knowing the structure because then uh, you know I'm I'm uh, able to kind of incorporate those tropes and kind of uh, you know crank them up to eleven um, with the the just the very cliche like normal exorcism movies. So like I, I had no problem like just making the most normal exorcism movie um, that and and you know kind of delivering everything and you know to satisfy everyone and delivering everything that everybody's already seen before in an exorcism movie and what they expect um, because you know the whole time I knew that you know halfway through it was going to become uh, another movie um, so I think it uh, uh, so it was actually very fun uh, to to make a movie that you know that that kind of really played by the rules to that degree almost uh you know satirically um you know because going into it i knew that it was going to be kind of the, the more the more important aspect was going to be the second half if anybody looks if they pay attention you really set us up for the second half because the first half we have molly's character of mary and she's very observational and you and Samuel Calvin, your cinematographer, your visual language is great. And what you do with a lot of your camera angles and what you're capturing is we see Mary trying to process what's unfolding in front of her. She doesn't say much. She's processing, and we see that. And Molly is very, very good at, at letting us see the wheels turning in her head as an actor. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, Molly's face molly's performance like uh, in in the uh beginning parts of it while she doesn't uh you know say a whole lot like i think watching it and it's great that you watch it the second time so i think a lot of people watch it the first time and just kind of get whiplash by it all but yeah you watch the second time it's it's all there it's just it was just uh completely unexpected so you kind of think that it was like just put on all of a sudden but i mean yeah you you definitely you know are um seeing something in um and Mary, Molly's character, uh, in the first half that you don't realize it because you never imagined that she's going to become such a strong part of the second half. Yeah, and then we're totally in her POV. I mean, you have us in her POV for the whole film because we, she is our observational eyes as to what's happening in the first half. And then we are with her and how, you know, how she is interacting with people outside of the of the convent how she is acclimating to life on the outside shall we say and what she's doing and as a visual pairing with that you have the first half of the film it's more it, your color palette it's kind of a more sickly drab kind of pallor that's cast over this what feels like lifelessness versus your second half which is brighter you introduce a lot of color um and i find that really interesting because it mirrors mary essentially yeah well there's actually a lot of uh i mean the whole movie is kind of uni unified in a way that it's all kind of this kind of greenish tint mm -hmm. uh through throughout the whole thing and i think uh, i don't know that necessarily uh, a lot changed from the convent to the uh, locations i think it was just the fact of moving uh the from the convent to the location i think the style is like still intact from the um from the first half of the film it's just in the first half of the film we're watching you know we're, we're in a in a very drab looking place to begin with 
Yeah, no, your style stays the same throughout the film. Uh, it's very classically shot. You don't use, you know, you and Samuel don't go for anything fancy with your camera work. You keep the aspect ratio the same. So it, we have that visual continuity. But then you just give us a distinctive yeah, change. we're just literally in a different world in that right. second half. Right. But, yeah, you stay very classically in how you're shooting this. I'm curious about your work with Samuel. How did the two of you come up with the visual language that you're using for this film? Uh, Sam and I don't really uh, come in with a plan. As, as, it was, we are, but we both uh, shot a lot of movies, so we kind of go in and just kind of like fill out what the place is going to be, what the time is going to be. Um, when when we're shooting, uh, we had everything because we know that we know how stuff goes you know what i mean especially working on low budget movies like you plan and plan and then you get there and it's like your plan doesn't work out so it's almost easier and uh you know less uh, of an, uh, uh, an emotional constraint when you get there and you can't do what you wanted to do so we kind of like got there and we're like all right this is how we're going to do this but we were definitely always uh always it was always going to be on a tripod it was always going to be a lot of still shots and um uh, and it, it, it'd be more uh, classically shot, like like you're you're talking about, um, because you have the nuns in front of you, and the nuns are the nuns are uh, that's the shot. You know what I mean? Just filling the uh, the room up with the nuns, filling the shot up with the nuns, filling um, you know blocking them in a, in a way that looks you know like a, like a Renaissance painting or something like mm -hmm. that. That was always kind of the goal. So the camera doesn't need to be moving around a lot for that. What you've done here beyond you know the story is so interesting but your casting and the characters that you create you have some of the most delicious characters in here mickey and you bring in there's humor yeah you know you, you watch start watching agnes and you don't think there's going to be anything funny in here but you have some great uh, comedic beats that happen in this film I think one of my absolute favorites is Ben Hall as Father Donahue, and he starts talking about the analogy of Christ to a sandwich and that Christians want the meat and not the bread filler on the outside of it. But you bring us even the names of the characters. You know, we have nuns, Sister Honey, Sister Ruth, and some of, you know, what they, their involvement. And, of course, then the dynamics between Molly's character and Mary and Sean Gunn as Paul Satchmo, and then Jake Horowitz as Benjamin. Where did you pull these these wonderful characters from in your mind? Because they are all very interesting and fun and engaging. Well, uh, the characters always kind of come first, and um, you know, a testament to that is how the second half of the movie goes. Because you know, like the first half because you were playing with those tropes there almost seems like there's some kind of loose plot happening um but then the second half there's no plot at all it's just you know a hangout movie with uh, you know following mary so but, but that that's based on just creating the characters and getting the characters on a sheet of paper and you know get get them talking you know what i mean it's not necessarily so much about uh writing some story or some uh, or having a, any agenda of of a plot or uh uh, some place where it's going, or even a very specific theme. It's more about just living in the world with these characters. 
Mm-hmm. Because, they, because yeah. yeah, like I said, like the characters come first. The characters are the most important thing. And if you uh, bog them down with uh, goals and plots and things that they're um, that they're striving for, then you don't really get to live in the character as much. You're more living in in the plot or the story. Mm. How improvisational were the actors allowed to go with their performances with the dialogue? Well, I'd say a lot of times uh, in uh, my movies, I do a lot of. Um, I do a lot of improvising and I say improvising it's more like we kind of come up with what we're going to do and rehearse it a lot of times and come up with it on the spot and then film it so it's really not uh improvising as much as it, as it is like retro scripting but um this one it was all pretty much straight from the script we were we didn't have a lot of time and we were uh there. we didn't have a lot of time to play so it was like um you know, we got we got to get the best movie we can out of this uh, small amount of time that we have and uh, limited resources. You know, just like always, but we we didn't have a lot of time to 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 mess around like that. Uh, especially with the you know, kind of like planned the scenes a lot bigger than um, than we <laughs> then we got there and it's like, oh no, this is gonna be really hard. How are we gonna get through this? So it was kind of like the script was our was our bible. Mm-hmm. Well, an element of the film that so often filmmakers overlook um, with indie films is the scoring. You bring in Nicholas Boss as your as your composer. What were you looking for musically to buttress or serve as an undercurrent for Agnes? Well, I knew it was. I didn't want a traditional uh, horror kind of like you know uh, a spook 'em up score. Yeah. That was kind of kind of like you know get you. Uh, you know, kind of get get your nerves going. It was I was uh, very more interested in, um, you know, like a more of a classic. Uh, you know, like the uh, like the piano theme at the beginning was mm-hmm. like, bum, bum, bum. you know, kind of like a '90s Best Picture winner score. Um, <laughs> and so that uh, so that was kind of the direction I gave Nick, and he just went off from there. Yeah, I really appreciated that you didn't go with what with the expected horror score. I was so happy to not hear that. I think you, you really, you chose very wisely. So one last question for you, Mickey, before I let you go. You know, what, with, with making a film like Agnes, you know, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker with this film? You have plenty of films under your belt, but you always pick up something new with each project. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker with Ag- making Agnes that you can take forward into future works? Sure. I think uh, a lot of my movies are pretty cynical and they're really more focused on the humor of just like, ha gotcha. Um, and, uh, it, you know, this kind of uh, becomes more poignant at the end. Um, I was, I, you know, d- dealing with uh, a lot of new people, I was, uh, it was an exercise and patience that I, and restraint that I normally don't um, get to uh, incorporate into movies. And, and this one um, kind of uh, forced me to do that. And because of that, um, I think like the performances, you get you get more serious performances. So um, therefore, like there's more heart in it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think, the, I think, you know, you learn something from every movie. And I think this one was definitely a little out of my comfort zone, especially towards the... Um, the latter half of, of all of it um and so i think uh you know patience and uh, restraint uh, goes a long way 
uh, even when you're watching the movie. Um, of course, you have to be patient to get through that second half. But I mean, I think the the reward is greater uh, in in my filmmaking experience and also in the uh, audience's experience by the time they get to the end of it. Look, watching Mo Molly Gunn and Sean, Molly Quinn and Sean Gunn, it's well worth the patience to get to that scene, the apartment scene. Uh, so. Oh yeah. <laughs> You know, everyone's patience. Is, sure they'll, they'll love to hear you say that too. I mean, it, everyone's patience. They will be well rewarded uh, watching this just for that one scene. The whole film is well done, Mickey, but that one scene is such a standout that people will definitely they'll perk up and go, "Oh my God, job well done, Mickey! I can't wait to see what you bring us next, and I hope I get to talk to you again in the future." Thank you so much. And that was writer-director Mickey Reese talking about Agnes. Well, that is a wrap for us for 2021. We aren't here next week. We won't be back until January 10th. Next two Mondays we're taking off so Pam can hopefully have a, an extended long weekend. Um, as she's rolling her eyes in the booth. Uh, but, <laughs> you know... Go to the movies, see the movies, see movies at home. Uh, don't forget the new George Clooney-directed film, The Tender Bar. It is a charmer, Daniel Ranieri, whose interview you're going to hear in the coming weeks. I've already spoken with Daniel, with Matthew Delamater, uh, with cinematographer Martin Rue. Those interviews will be coming out. They have requested I hold them as, until we get closer to the release on Amazon Prime the first week of January. So they'll be coming out on BehindTheLensOnline.net uh, sometime next week, uh, as will many other things. There's a lot of stuff coming your way. But we'll be back on January the 10th. Is it Jan Yes, January the 10th. We've already got all of January booked for you with fun, exciting filmmakers. Um, so until then, have a great holiday. Have a happy and safe new year or bah humbug, whatever you like. Uh, I'm Debbie Elias, and this is Behind the Lens. Behind the Lens.